Welcome to episode number 111 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm really excited today because we're going to be going back into the professional experience of someone who has a lot of experience in industries handling combustible dust and fire safety and dust explosion safety. Um, and that is George Mitchkovich, who will be coming on to talk about his experience in these industries over the last, uh, well, five decades or, or 50 years in, in powder handling and dust processing industries. George, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks uh, for the invite, uh, Chris. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time so I can share with you basically what is my my passion to ensure that these types of events do not continue to happen based on my experience in industry over the last 50 years plus. I'd appreciate that. And I looked back at our original discussions to kind of see when when you and I first started talking. Um, and the first emails I found were back in 2017. So pretty pretty early when we were doing the newsletter when we had that was probably back when the website was mydustexplosionresearch.com. So be, before the dust safety science days. And you had some really kind words on my journey and the kind of things that we're doing. Those those words of encouragement really are one of the reasons that we're we're here where we're at today, why we have our team and you know those that encouragement really helped keep us going. So George itself, the genesis of this podcast interview was a couple of, you know, several years later, we, we have uh, the Dust Safety Academy. George was in there and in his introduction post, which is something we encourage new new members to do, he put this and I'll read a little bit about it. He said he's dealt with combustible dust hazards since 1966 when he's a co-op student while studying to become a chemical engineer at the University of Detroit. Uh, and his respect for dust explosions became a passion to prevent them when he was lead investigator for a tragic explosion that took place in 1989, a site that he worked at. The consequences of this impacted me personally and still live in my mind, heart, and soul. So this was several years after we had originally started talking, but I hadn't heard this part of, of George's story. And when I, I did hear that, I wanted to reach out to him and say, hey, can we you know, talk about how this influenced your professional journey, influenced the companies you worked with, influenced the type of work that you do? Uh, that'd be something really useful for the podcast. So I guess before we get into the, the interview and start talking through these, these topics, George, I just want to do say thank you for encouraging us early on. Um, and, and thank you for your, your many decades of work in this industry. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So in this episode, we're going to do a couple things. And I think this will probably be a two-part interview. I want to go back and talk about these early days that, that George mentioned, his background, how he got started. I want to talk about this incident that he brought up and what some of the lessons that were learned there and get an idea of what the status of combustible dust knowledge was around that time. So we're talking the late 60s, 70s, 80s, um, that kind of time frame. George then went on to do a lot of work within the companies he was working with um, and groups he was working with in combustible dust safety since that time. So that'll probably be the focus of the second interview that if you're listening to this live, will come out next week. And if you're listening to this in the future, then just press next after this interview and get access to that. So George, probably the best place to start to kind of jump in is before we go all the way back in time, what, what's your role in industry today um, and what kind of industries have you worked in and roles have you had in the past you know, 50 plus years in your career? Okay, Chris, kind of uh, putting it in that perspective, uh, let me kind of cover it in, uh, in, in three sections. The first section was uh, 
while getting my degree in chemical engineering, getting the opportunity to co-op with a company. Uh, the second section would be the 37 years that I worked with the uh, with a company that, from which I retired in uh, 2006. And since then, I've been doing some uh, some consulting for on a on a part-time basis uh, for for industry a lot of that consulting has actually taken place overseas so if you look at sort of my my formation over those uh, 50 plus years it went from the theoretical to the application to actually uh, living it in a in a passionate manner just to kind of the, to put this thing in perspective, the, the company I worked with is one that has dealt with this topic as a hazard since about 1965, when a related event uh, in a in a chemical process uh, resulted in a in a catastrophic uh, consequence that led to the conclusion that the traditional safety systems and approach were not suitable to deal with process hazards. And to my historic recollection, it is the birth of what we call process safety management today. Uh, the company called it PSMR, which is Process Safety and Risk Management, and which I think is much more applicable today. So I've had the, since 1969, when I started working with that company, I've had the sort of the privilege of learning and helping and assisting the organizations I worked with in this thing that became officially OSHA's 1910-119 PSM in 1992. And uh, we have always dealt with uh, our hazards dealing with combustible dust from a PSM perspective, even though they do not fall into those categories, 186 categories of chemicals and quantities that are mandated by OSHA 1910-119. So kind of wanted to give you that perspective just so folks can better understand where it is that I'm coming from. Well, I appreciate that. And I mean, there's a couple of key things that we're going to pull out probably later on this interview. Like you, you mentioned the, the OSHA PSM standard, process safety management standard, but that combustible dust maybe doesn't fall under that or, or you know, always fall under that or what, what conditions may it fall under that. That's a, that's a big topic that I do want to get out of this interview, but we're going to go kind of back in time a bit first. What you said was really interesting in terms of I'd say the birth of process safety management, there were some large-scale catastrophic explosions across the world over a period of a, a few years that really drove this. And the kind of thinking was, just like you said, that occupational health and safety doesn't necessarily... So if you have a good slips, trips, and falls record, if you have you know not very many lost time incidents, that doesn't necessarily your oper mean you're operating at low risk from a process safety perspective. And those that kind of timeline is when when those ideas started to develop. And then since then, so over the last 50 years, process safety management has really grown, been encouraged by industry, especially in, say, high hazard handling industries, 
and I, I'd like to put a definition on this high hazard at some point because uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen some pretty hazardous things come out of, out of combustible dust as well. But there's that's sort of some of the, the history and context. I think in terms of your story, I'd really like to go back to even as a, a, a chemical engineering student, you mentioned that in 1966, you started to deal with combustible dust hazards. What did that look like at that time before we get into you know the, the period of the growth of PSM and that? Yeah, it was uh, what I'll call just very uh, basic information. Uh, in this particular uh, place that I was working with for that particular company, uh, I was working as a technician in a pilot plant that was developing uh, different color toners. Now, remember, this is 1966. So this this operation was kind of a two step. The first step was the the chemical reactions that created the specific products, and then those specific products were then uh, tested, uh, actually were processed in a operation that involved uh, size reduction, a milling step, and they were organic in nature. And it was uh, recognized uh, uh, by the company that it presented the dust explosivity uh, hazard. But to my recollection, and remember, this is uh, quite a while back, I, I don't recall that I, for example, I could see the, the type of data that we get today, minimum ignition energy lower. Uh, explosivity levels, concentrations, MOC, minimum action concentrations, et cetera, P, K, sub T's, et cetera. Uh, I don't recall seeing that information, but indeed the particular system that I worked with and most of the work that I did with them was on the back end doing the, uh, the, the size reduction and the blending and the compounding. The system uh, where these powders were collected was indeed uh, protected by explosion panels. So it was sort of my, my first uh, introduction to the concept of, of if you have a hazardous process, what can you do to prevent internal damage, injury, et cetera. And the, the explosion panels were, were the mechanism to do that. I'm assuming that the data was there because for them to have been properly uh, designed, uh, they must have had the data, but I don't recall really seeing that piece of the information. Yeah, it's interesting hearing about that. And do you think, because you mentioned that the, the company experienced sort of a large loss incident in 1965, was that a key driver to even even bringing you on as a co-op student and, and talking about combustible dust as a hazard? Were they identified at that kind of you know, toner processing operation prior to the 19, say mid 1960s, that being a combustible dust hazard, is that something that was relatively new at that time? Let's try to get an idea of, of back then how, what the status would be. No, the, it was, it was a, a relatively new internal concept also. So, uh, yeah, it makes, that makes sense. And I think, because when I think back to even grain elevators and grain handling, there were sort of, you know, this, growth of grain elevator explosions throughout the 60s, throughout the 70s, and then culminating in the late 70s with a, a couple of really severe years in 77, 78. And that's when I, from combustible dusts awareness in 
in the US, at least it kind of goes through waves. There was a, there's a wave in the 20s and, and kind of went back down, but that was a, the wave that led to the OSHA grain handling standard. Um, so I kind of associate that with a lot more recollection for organic dust. So it's interesting to dig into even a couple of years before that, what the what the state of the knowledge was. And I'm sure your company was even, be, because they had exposure to previous incidents, was ahead of the curve, I would say, probably ahead of the curve even for today, unfortunately, in, in those type of operations. Um, to be thinking about that. Yeah, uh, but there is always the uh, the challenge that we see all the time, and that is after a particular system, and here I'm talking about the documented system that drives the the procedures and the practices and the related uh, guidelines versus the need to uh, to sustain it and the need to improve upon it as as technology evolves and the work that you have done have has proven that in my in my opinion uh, at least in terms of information that is available to me from from yourself and your team and that is that uh, that evolution uh, the information that we have today is significantly different from what we had in, in my case, you know, five decades ago. And unfortunately, sometimes uh, the companies do not, uh, once they install something, they think that they're going to be okay and safe forever and ever. But as technology e- evolves, uh, then uh, they don't, make the effort to to stay with it not only technology but also the uh the uh the regulations no what we're seeing right now driven by the nfpa with the dust hazard analysis i mean those things really are, are driven by the fact that industry really and truly should have done what is being required of them now many 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 years ago we, we shouldn't really uh, i mean if we really and truly value our people we value our uh, our communities we value our investments then uh, you know we need to do the right things and whatever the right thing is so i kind of wanted to share that 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 perspective and the the, the last and um, to me most important aspect is we don't learn from them i mean when a silo gray silo inside a explodes and has disastrous consequences, uh, me and company B, who have similar silos, many times we don't take the time and the effort to learn from that incident in company A to improve ourselves. You know, and that, that, that's, that's an issue of management. Management has to make that commitment because it takes resources. It takes people, time, and money, which I see as an investment, not a cost to prevent a catastrophic consequence that is going to cost significantly more than it would have cost me to uh, to maintain my operations in a in a safe operating manner so yeah i appreciate you sharing that i'm thinking even i mean there's a couple pieces to it one one is that generally speaking and and unfortunately this isn't the case all the time but you know a combustible fire explosion is a, is a relatively say uncommon event now there are i'm sure there's people that are listening to this interview right now going that you know they have a they have a a fire in their 
in their facility once a week, um, or even a you know maybe they maybe they've nicknamed their explosion, so they have a, a puff in their mill, you know, quite quite frequently. So maybe it is more frequent than I'm saying, but the point I want to make is it's not frequent enough that you can learn on your own. I don't think you don't have a very big window if you're only looking at your own loss history. If you broaden your your window of observation to other folks in your industry or even other folks in your geographical region and start to learn from them and, and they learn from you, you can get to a point where you can get enough loss history that you're you're covering more of the potential mistakes that can happen. So it's a shame when a company I'll give an example. Um, you're you're processing and this is different than the organics that we're talking about here, but you're processing metal dust, you have an explosion in your uh, shredder your your grinder so you install wet dust collection but you you want to retrieve that material so you install wet dust collection that's great but then then you got to dry the material out and you know then you have a sifter you have a screen and you end up having explosions and fires and those other materials as well so you sort of becomes whack-a-mole where you're you try to fix one thing and then you know you end up having another problem so if you if you expand your scope out so you have a bigger catchment is the only way i think to describe it of instance coming in from others in your industry and have those communication lines open, you can start to figure these things out faster. And maybe we can do what we did in in, you know, 30 years and 10 years instead of instead of taking so long. I don't know if there's anything in that that you that resonates with you, uh, George. Yeah, it does. And it I guess start we now start connecting the uh, the different elements of process safety management uh, that we uh, applied in my 37 years with the uh, I guess the only company that I worked with on a full-time basis, and that's incident investigations. When you look at a at a situation like a a fire or maybe a little pop, uh, people talk about the word minor. This was a minor fire. It was a minor explosion. Well, in my mind, there's nothing that is minor because what a what usually separates minor from major is luck. And so this, if, if companies, if, 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 if a given entity doesn't take a very close look at one of these uh, situations, uh, we may also call them an air miss in a thorough manner and really drill it down to the root cause and address that, that root cause, then, uh, it's it's going to happen again. Let, let, me, let me give an example. I was uh, in, uh, in at the last site that I worked. There was an incident. Uh, it was an uh, explosion, minor explosion. I used the word minor explosion fire, and got together with the uh, with a team. I was there sort of as a as a resource in in my role at that site in my last uh, assignment, and went through an hour and a half of discussions and agreements and uh, we're ready to leave. And I asked the question, and it was at uh, this case, it was uh, old, old man in the meeting. I said, gentlemen, in what you have done today, what is going to prevent this particular situation from recurring tomorrow? And there was dead silence. And the leader of the team then said, okay, guys, let's get back. Because what they had put in place was a series of, uh, of administrative aspects 
And there was nothing from a process safety aspect improvement in terms of making changes to the process itself to prevent its recurrence. So that's the other piece. You, you need to have the, the technical know-how within the organizations. You need to have experts within the organization if you are vulnerable to dust-related explosions or, or fires with, with knowledge of uh, process safety management and or the, uh, the NFPA standards to help you to address these things. Because in most cases, you know, it's going back to the Swiss cheese model. You you may have you may have had some similar events in the past. Nothing was done. Then these things start sliding and aligning, and then you finally have it, and it's very catastrophic in nature. So, in my to make a long story short, incident investigation in my mind is a key aspect in dealing with uh, prevention on a long-term basis, because if, if that is not done properly, then it's just a matter of time of luck or good luck before the significant event takes place. Yeah, the the quote that I pulled out there was the the term minor versus major. And if the only thing separating those two was luck, then you're you know you're probably in trouble. That's a that's a key point. I want to I want to put some context around this maybe by going through an actual incident. Because you mentioned this 1989, I think it was 1989. I'll get you to correct me if I'm wrong there, but yeah, it was in 1989. Yes, and that 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 was at a was that a different facility in this toner operation you're working at? Yeah, uh, the, the the toner operation was basically I worked with them from '66 to '67 for basically three three quarters. What we would do is we would go to class starting in our uh, uh, junior year. Actually, the end. Yeah, so we would go to class for. Uh, we were at the university for four months, and we would work for four months. So that was uh, that was the uh, my experience there, and so it was sort of limited. Uh, the so in 1969, I joined this uh, company that I've mentioned on a on a full time basis, and the 89 incident uh, it relates to that company. Okay, are you able to talk us? Through that incident, you know what generally occurred, and yeah, let let me again, let me give you some. It's important to have uh, background for understanding and for fairness. Basically, in in eighty eight, this uh, operation and a number of other sites were acquired by my company from another petrochemical company that decided to uh, abandon this business sector of, of theirs. And the event happened, so event happened in actually in, in April of 89, so about 60 months after the, the acquisition. At that point in time in, in my career, as I said, based on the fact that at, uh, for the previous uh, 19 years with, the, with, this, with, my, with my full-time company, I had been exposed and had been practicing what we call then process safety management. Now, it isn't exactly what it is today, but it's probably maybe at, at that point, it was probably 90% of, of what OSHA 1910-119 requires. And uh, so I was asked to come over to transfer from one site uh, to uh, to another to to assist them 
in a leadership role, you know, was I was in a leadership role. I was not at that point. I was not in a in a management position to start looking at the process safety related issues that may have been inherited uh, as we lacked some of the information that was needed. So we were actually in the process of doing those. Uh, risk analysis of several operations that existed in that location. And we hadn't gotten to the one that was uh, involved in the, in the given event. So, uh, so with that as a sort of as a background and an and introduction, before I kind of give you a description of what took place and some of the related consequences, is there anything that I have shared up to this point relating my, let's call PSM experience uh, that needs clarification? No, I have, I have some questions afterwards on on how do we get combustible dust to be more recognized in things like 1910, uh, 119, but let's save those. I want to dive into the incident a bit. So what, what happened from there? Yeah, it was, I mean, if you look at it from a... <laughs> From a unit operation, you you can't you cannot think of anything simpler uh, conceptually. That's why I like it as an example. <laughs> yeah, conceptually, than than you know, real complicated uh, chemical process. Basically, what was taking place is a a organic material in a contained in a FIBC, you know, a super sack was uh, raised over a hopper and then it was untied and then the material would flow into a vessel where it was subsequently evolved the the formation the first step in the formation of a of a liquid product tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands i, I really don't know had of this dumping operation had had taken place and generally speaking uh, the the words that you would get hey george it's really hard to get the stuff out we got to push and hit that fibc for the product to trickle out etc cetera, etc cetera. but in this particular instance a product that would normally take for the operator 15 to 20 minutes to discharge this one, based on the investigation, discharged in a matter of about 15 to 30 seconds. And based on work that was, and by the way, this was not a, today you can get FIBCs that are, you can you can isolate them there. They have a special material that you can ground. And this one was not, this was just a, a typical polyester uh, uh, material of construction. So anyhow, what happened was as the material was dropped, all of a sudden there was a, a dust explosion and the uh, the blowback that we see uh, hit as a fireball hit the person that was discharging the material, the operator was discharging the material. Uh, on the same floor, there was also a, a little a little room where a person that controlled the subsequent parts of the process 
was present and that person also basically saw the aftermath of the event and uh, the the person who was uh, dumping the material was very seriously uh, burnt uh, second and and third degree burns that were uh, took several months of hospital care to recover he was airlifted to a burn center because the location we were, we were at didn't have one. And uh, it took several months for his recovery to take place. And sadly enough, uh, what I learned several years afterwards, these two individuals experienced what we call today PTSD. So they, they that impact hurt them not only physically, but also emotionally and mentally. Uh, in, it took us a long time. It took us almost, we convened a, a team of experts and recognizing, I was asked to lead it, and recognizing my limits in this technology, I was, uh, I went ahead and invited members of our company in, in other businesses that were really and truly the experts when it came to uh, to dust explosion technology. I mean, they were the ones who had the uh, the knowledge, and really and truly, the as it is in many cases, the the question becomes: What was the ignition source? Where did the energy come from that uh, ignited the the dust cloud, the dust and resulted in that catastrophe and took us about four weeks before we started to get some uh, internal and some external uh, inputs because we involved also ended up also inviting Chilworth to to assist us that it was probably uh, a high level of static energy was created in the discharge of the material in some form or fashion, whether it was friction of the uh, of the particles against one another, or whether it was the particles uh, rubbing against the uh, the polyester uh, FIBC or whatever, uh, that ended up being the the conclusion that that we reached. And you would talk about uh, uh, the the mitigation and. That was installed in in a matter of of hours. All we what we learned was to prevent it from happening. All we had to do was to install a if a, a control device to make sure that we didn't have excess flow. So we installed and between the the hopper and the uh, the tank, we installed a rotary valve, and that pretty much took care of the possibility of, of a future likely incident so a very very simple relatively inexpensive care took i mean uh, solution took care of uh, of the problem we also did some related to this we also did some some fibc discharging work with uh, with chilworth that then provided uh, provided us with more more technical information as to other means and mechanisms that we could consider in the future to prevent this type of an occurrence.
thank you for sharing that. It is pretty well. I want to I want to talk a bit about how this has influenced your direction and your career, and also we're going to talk on that in the next podcast episode. But I'll make a, a comment here because you said right at the very start, this is a, a unit operation. It's about the simplest as you can really picture in, in powder handling. You you have a bag and you're unloading it into a hopper. But the the thing that I want to highlight here is you you said. 10,000, 100,000 cycles, times this has happened before without causing an incident. The reason I want to highlight that is that would be, you know, maybe several workers, you know, working for quite a long time. So you hear this quite a bit, this, you know, that's never happened here. It's never been a problem. I've been here 30 years. That's not been a concern. And those are, those are really hard human barriers to, to break down and get through, but we have to. For this reason, <laughs> it was a simple fix. It was a quick fix, um, but it, there could be tremendous resistance to doing that fix because of how normalized the activity becomes. Because it happened so many times in the past without a, a large incident, and that's sort of just the nature of the type of materials we're handling. Handling they're they're sometimes difficult to ignite, and only under certain circumstances. So in this case, they had to be dropped quickly, so you had a dust cloud form. They also had to be dropped quickly, so you had the right amount of say velocity between the bag and the particles or particles in themselves to build up a stack charge to be able to ignite that dust cloud. It all happened at, happened to happen at the same time in the same location in space and time. And also the operator had to be there in the same location, space and time. So all those things, you know, had to align in order for this to happen. Um, but when you're, you're, so that's just kind of a cautionary note. I'm sure you see this as well. It's, that's the that's the hard part. That's the difficulty we have with process safety professionals to overcome this. I've been here 30 years. Like there, there may have been a couple of people that have been there for many years and done that operation for a long time and never had this happen. But then it did and nothing changed. Well, I guess the bag was, was unloaded quicker, but it's a relatively simple fix. So I don't know, you must have come across that as well in your career. And this is probably something you lean back to to say, hey, it is important to to understand and to try to minimize the risk in these applications. Yeah, and uh, one of the ways that I uh, moving forward, one of the learnings, because uh, now would we have identified that because we we did have a a PHA scheduled on that on that entire operation. Uh, basically, we prioritize the the units at this at this plan that we acquired. And one of the things that we're, we had already done and we're starting was doing some PHAs on other, on other operations, uh, for example, on you know, milling, uh, you know, size reduction, et cetera, that are, that are known to be more vulnerable to these events. But to make a long story, I don't, well, how do we identify they or not? No. But I think one of the ways that I have found that we can overcome some of this resistance is by involving the operators, the mechanics, the, the folks on the floor in the process hazards uh, analysis, because then that allows them to not only understand their process better, but also allows them to contribute to the process because they know what's going on in the field where we really don't have that intimate knowledge. But more importantly, it also allows us then to uh, to bridge that whatever needs to be improved upon or whatever needs to be uh, worked on, the, the person on the on the team then acts as a bridge between one between the what was done in that process hazard analysis and his teams and other teams in bringing that knowledge to them. 
and saying, hey, guys, uh, you know, they're not asking us to do this or that just for the sake of doing it. You know, that there is a real value, and the value is to make sure that nothing happens to you and that you can go home in a safe manner the same way you came in. Uh, so my one of the key learnings that I got from that is engage your operating and maintenance personnel in those PHAs as appropriate to gain their knowledge, but also to improve their knowledge, and then they can bring that back to the uh, to the floor. Yeah, that's a really good one. Any other kind of key takeaways or learnings from that that incident investigation? Yeah, the other incident uh, learning uh, it's the use of uh, fire resistant uh, uh, coveralls. We were using polyester coveralls, and unfortunately, you know, they, if anything else, they're the worst thing you can have on you when there is a when you're exposed to you no know, heat and flames. And we did get uh, a lot of the, the people. What I got feedback that I got from the people who responded. This this incident happened like eleven o'clock at night. And, you know, as it always happens, this was the last FIBC that this gentleman literally was going to dump before going to the showers, change and go home. And the people who responded, they said that the the polyester was burned and stuck to the skin of of this person. And the other feedback that we got from uh, from the doctors after the fact through the person that was visiting him and kind of kept in touch with him was that the, that made the injuries worse. Uh, the fact that they stuck, so they, what had to be done to remove it, et cetera, exacerbated the, the injuries. So again, the, the other piece, and this goes back to uh, the what I call the investment piece, uh, going to uh, fiber that resists fires, whatever, which one ever it is, uh, it, it does cost more. It does sometimes present uh, a challenge to some people because they say, well, they're hotter and in the summer, et cetera, et cetera. But again, uh, it's a, it was another key learning that uh, relatively simple that you know, by going to a different uh, material of construction for the coverall, the extent of the injury would probably have been reduced significantly or not. I don't know. I really can't answer that question. But that was another key learning that I came away with. Do you have any experience on when you might say that that's, you know, a level of requirement? Like the challenge I think that we've, that I've ran into in the past, and this is sort of a personal one is, you know, if you, if you use the the line is, okay, well, you have combustible dust and, and potential ignition sources around, you should have FRC, uh, fire resistant clothing. Well, you should probably also, you know, talk about fixing the hazard. <laughs> so if people don't want to admit that they have a hazard, then they, they almost don't want to admit that they need FRC. And I've, I've got stuck in that conversation. I don't know if there's any, any guidance you come across or on, on when to use. Yeah. I, again, uh, what I go back is to the, uh, to the process hazard analysis. What we, we go through, uh, Sometimes just a risk analysis, or sometimes we go into a quantitative risk analysis using some of the techniques uh, that give you, you know, 
probability uh, and other aspects such as uh, roba or or other technologies that exist and if the if the pha team with the presence of operators and mechanics identifies that the consequence of such an event is such that a person can be significantly be exposed to the given hazard then one of the recommendations in in our company that we would put forth would be to mandate the use of the the right materials of construction for for the coveralls if the coveralls are required on the job what what we end up doing in our case it, it ends up being risk based the, the the thought process has to be risk based because if it becomes we have found if it becomes one based on opinion you know, your opinion is going to be different than mine and so we we follow the the standards and the basic guidance and policies of the company uh, and our company had a you know it had different businesses uh, other businesses had didn't have the dust uh, the dust explosion issue but we're dealing with toxic materials flammable materials materials that uh, could uh, create other issues uh, to personnel to communities to equipment etc and so we worked off that because at least then there was a level of consistency and whenever something came up that needed to be improved upon again these standards were not perfect they were i have a saying that uh, the standards were really we were created on the basis of blood bones and tears uh, in most cases was the learning from these tragic events uh, again why we got into psm well a lot of folks got killed and hurt so uh, again and that's where the sustainability comes into place you you just can't live on a standard and our standards were changed on the frequency were reviewed on the frequency of one to every three years depending on which one it was and in most cases after a significant event that was not systematically covered in the given standard the standard would then be improved upon and updated you know, within months yeah and i think that's almost we'll, we'll we'll get into this probably in the the next episode more but almost one of the challenges with combustible dust is that we we lag behind just in just the nature of things psm was introduced in the chemical processing industries and and similar industries, but first in the chemical processing industries, because of large loss incidents, and then developed over time to include and depends on which framework you select, but you can have the OSHA framework or you know CCPS framework or whichever framework you want to use to have all the elements and categories and, and things included. I think we're building that up in combustible dust over time again, and the it's what you just said through blood, bone, and tears. And, and at the end of the day, we're probably going to get to a very similar place. Uh, and that's a question of, you know, can we skip some of those steps <laughs> to get there? Or do we need to go through that learning process as an industry to figure out how how it applies differently in a in a milling operation or how it applies differently in a um, metal operation or, a, a, you know, the, these different industries that, that don't have that history of PSM. I don't know the answer there, but I know we, over time and things like, we'll probably talk about this as well, but things like dust hazard analysis 
have been put in place to start to add on those PSM elements. But from if you step back far enough, it sure looks like we're headed to the same, the same uh, fourteen pillar, sixty eight element kind of frameworks that are there in PSM as well. Well, again, it it goes in my humble opinion to the very top of a corporation. Uh, the CEO and his executives and the board. Honestly, because if it's not valued, and again, it's a question of, do you look at the safety of your, I guess I hear I'm talking philosophically. If you look at the safety of the personnel that are working with you in the given organization that you're working with, as a key aspect that you value, not driven, not driven by regulations, not driven by reputations, not driven by other business factors, but by driven, but driven by a true, heartfelt, emotionally, rationally established value that you no, know, are important, our people are important to us. We will do whatever we need to do to keep them safe because they are the the ones that make the products contribute to our profits, uh, and we, we need we need to have them safe and sound. Now, now granted, it's the philosophy, other philosophy coming to play, but at least you have that type of discussion at the very top during your board uh, meetings or during the meetings of the executive with his uh, direct reports as a item. And in the company that I worked with, that was the first item that they would discuss uh, safety, safety related uh, issues and occupational health, environment, uh, process safety, all of those pieces. Uh, so it, you know, we, we talk about, uh, one of the terms that we talk about is felt leadership and what felt leadership in my mind is when I see my boss and see what he or she are doing, you know, I can smell, taste, feel, touch, hear that safety from him or from her every single time because that's the other factor that I that I that I learned in in those 36 years it's for me uh, and I use the word safety in general involving all other aspects it's top down if it's if it's not practiced expected uh, dealt with in a proper manner uh, it will never it will never be done at the floor because unfortunately people have a tendency of not valuing some of the things that are in place to keep them safe. But that's my experience. That's my opinion. Uh, so I share that with you as a, as a little aside at this point. Well, I appreciate it. And I think the discussion's really, really fantastic. I'm, I'm hoping it's helpful for the audience as well. Uh, and what I'd like to do is just sort of close off this episode on on the impact that this 1989 incident had on you, um, and then in next week's episode, we're going to talk about you know what 
what you've done in your career since then, what kind of projects you've been part of. But I guess that's the best place to leave off. Where, you know, what has this had on you as an impact? And then what are some of the ways that's uh, affected your career and some of the things we'll be talking about in next week's episode? Sounds good. Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you, Chris. It was a real pleasure. Okay. Well, I, I did want to just, maybe we'll, we'll highlight some of those for the audience um, so that they, they can know what to expect next week. So you mentioned that this 1989 incident had a large impact on you personally and professionally. Where did you go immediately after that? Or, you know, I think you, you mentioned DEFS, uh, which I can't remember what that acronym is for, but how did that fit into where your career progressed? And then we'll, we'll close that, leave this episode off with that. Okay. Before I do that, let me uh, kind of introduce another technical aspect that deals with the evolutionary progress with uh, the uh, combustible dust hazards. When I, as I said, when I worked the co-op, uh, basically in terms of technology that was used, basically was the explosion panel. When I started working with the uh, with a company that I worked with full time, then in addition to seeing explosion panels, I also saw the application of inerting, uh, the use of of nitrogen in in an operation in a size reduction operation that involved a an organic material that had a, a very low minimum ignition energy. I, I, I don't recall exactly what it was, but it, I think it was something after the material was uh, built, it was down to, I think, three to five millijoule of MIE. Yeah. And the next uh, step was actually, even before I saw the, the, the 89 uh, event, uh, I was involved as a project leader in 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 the installation of a of a twelve million dollar project that uh, we were going to manufacture at this site a a new active ingredient which in itself was very uh, very very low toxicity that had the same toxicity as a salt. But if, if released into the environment, it was very highly active. So at that point, uh, you know, traditionally what we had, what we would have done with uh, what we'd done previously really wouldn't work because if we installed explosion panels and we had an explosion, we would damage the environment. So we started looking what we could do to prevent that. And so we went out into the field and see what technology was was available uh, to replace explosion uh, uh, panels. And then at that point, we started uh, the use of uh, of suppression systems. We where we would have had uh, uh, explosion panels. We installed uh, the appropriate uh, suppression systems, valves, uh, suppressing agent, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, finally, the, the next step is we did another project, and this was done in the in the site that I was involved in after the uh, after the explosion in in '89. Uh, we were building a, a new a new facility, and in that one, after doing all the studies and everything else, 
uh, we found that uh, it was best to install one of these, uh, and I won't name the, the the technical name, but I call them the the safe suppression tubes that relieve uh, internally into a building uh, without, uh, you know, they eliminate, they have the internal design to eliminate the, the flames, et cetera, et cetera. So I've also been very fortunate in, in those, uh, my first 20, 25 years to be able to uh, basically stay, stay up with the industry and I don't know what, what other new technologies exist today. I haven't seen too many other ones, but uh, uh, that's another piece of my education over the last uh, 50 years or so. Well, thank you for that, George. And I think, like I said, the I think the audience is going to really enjoy this interview. And next week's episode, we're going to talk through what kind of projects you've been involved in since the 1989 incident. I'm sure we'll talk about some of these technologies as well the combustible dust landscape, how that's changed and any, any recommendations you have for me, um, for our work with dust safety science and, and dust safety Academy and dust safety professionals move forward as well. So that's what the audience can look forward to. George, I appreciate your time. I look forward to getting back on the podcast for, for next week's episode as well. Thank you. Thanks, George. We'll be talking soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and George Mikskovich. And we've been talking through his 50 year, 50 plus year journey in industries handling combustible dust. And in particular, we went all the way back to when he started as a co-op student, which is his first job as an engineering co-op student. Well, I don't know if it's actually his first, but the one we talked about was on a, a organic toner line. So they had a reactor, they got a product out of it, then they milled that product and blended it. So at different processing operations. And he really described, you know, the, the start of understanding of combustible dust safety. So he saw these event panels on some of those processing operations and that really sort of sparked the, and sparked maybe is not the right the right word for that, but really sparked some interest here. Uh, and at the same time, we were having things like explosions and grain elevators in the in the U.S. We were having more of a spotlight put on combustible dust in terms of of their companies. They were seeing some issue um, some incidents at other facilities. It was just really a time for for growth and starting to develop some understanding in terms of process safety management, and then applying that in combustible dust as well. We talked through George's experience. We, we talked about this 1989 incident investigation that was dumping a, again, an organic powder material into a hopper. So, so basically the simplest unit operation you can think of, something that had been done many, many times before and, and unfortunately caused a, you know, a, a severe open air deflagration that, that injured, that injured a, a worker quite severely with, we didn't say it on the show, but potentially it sounds like life altering um, injuries. So, so very severe. The note on that is that you can have this thing happen, this processing operation happen time and time and time again for a period of years or decades before an event happens, which is really the challenge with the, uh, you know, the thought process that I've been here for 30 years and this has never been an issue. There are folks that have been in Imperial Sugar for 30 years, had seen fires, had seen deflagrations, but never any of the scale that, that leveled the building. Um, when it actually happened. So they weren't lying when they said, I've been here 30 years and that's never been a problem. We've never seen it happen. They weren't lying, but it doesn't change to the fact that it, the next day the building was gone. So that's the challenge we have as process safety professionals in implementing change in these industries and getting this information from folks like George and and other people. We had, he mentioned Chilworth. We had uh, Dr. Bahid Evadot um, on the podcast back in episode 
73, who was probably the one involved in some of that uh, analysis from electrostatic hazards. So it's good to get these stories onto the podcast to share what the lessons learned are, what are the things that keep coming up time and time again that are challenges in these industries. George mentioned a couple of key learnings from this particular incident, in particular, uh, making sure that the boots on the ground team, um, operators, the, the laborers are involved with the uh, hazard analysis process so that they can contribute their insights. Um, you may just find out they've actually seen some small fires. They've seen some small open air deflagrations in unit operations that you didn't think they were, were possible if you're designing from the outside. Um, you mentioned the use of fire resistant clothing. And you mentioned also the requirement, the need to have um, buy-in from executive teams and you know business leaders in order to have an efficient and effective safety program overall. So lots of really great material there. Um, we're going to have George on the podcast again next week to continue talking through his, his experience um, in a program they started within his company, uh, which I think is DEFS, and I don't have the acronym, so I'm going to say Dust Explosion and fire safety maybe but we'll get george to come on and tell us what that that stands for um next week and i want to talk through some more of these systematic things with combustible dust safety and how we can make changes in these industries uh, moving forward as well so as always i want to say thank you for listening to the dust safety science podcast i hope you have a safe and productive week ahead and i really appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust making them safer every day uh, please keep up the good work and please stay safe out there 